Thanks for tuning in to the Lake Forest Church Podcast. Lake Forest is a community for people who have given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our churches in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. January 2nd, 2020, 20 years ago, and I was sitting in, oh, what did I say, 20, 2000 and zero, zero. Yeah, I'm gonna, this is gonna, it was 2000, you remember, in the year 2000, okay, that's, uh, so it was 20 years ago, year 2000, I'm in church, and I'm seated in my usual spot, exactly where you guys are, right back there, the very back row, raise the hands, back row sitters, you see, you don't like me to call you out, but I sat right there, that was my spot, and the reason I sat right there is the same reason you sit there, because you don't want anybody to know you're here, right, that's kind of why, right? and, and I wanted to sneak out of church early and not talk to anybody, I mean, that was my, that was my MO back then, right? So I was in my usual spot, and I don't remember any of the songs we sang. I don't remember the scripture passage that was preached on. But I remember, like it was this morning, the question that the pastor asked. In fact, it was the very last question of his sermon, and it has haunted me every New Year's for the last 20 years. You know what he asked? He said this. He said, are we any more like Jesus today than we were a year ago? Interesting. Am I any more like Jesus today than I was a year ago? Indeed, am I any more like Jesus today than I was 20 years ago on that Sunday? And the answer is, I, I don't know. I hope so. Because the truth is, I've got a lot of stuff in my life, some areas of my life that I'd really like to grow in. There's some things I'd like to get better at, some things I'd like to do differently, right? I'd love to, to love my family better. I would love to, to uh, be more patient with my kids. I, I'd like to be better at my golf swing. I'd like to be better at remembering to take the trash out. But it's not just the little things. I, I'd, I'd like to be better in how I manage my stress and my anxiety and how I respond to others. There are just some areas in my life that I'd like to get better at. And my guess is you probably have some areas in your life that you'd like to be better at too, right? I mean, if we're honest, I'm not going to make you raise hands, but like, we all got some stuff, right? We all got some stuff we'd like to be better at. Now, the good news is that it's not just me who has this goal for my life. It turns out this is actually God's goal for my life too. Did you know that? God's goal for our lives is that we would get better, that we would grow in character. Now, a lot of us have grown up in religious environments that, you know, we were kind of given a different story. We were led to believe that the whole point of the Christian message was to get out of hell and get into heaven. Right? That, that was kind of the sum total of it. And certainly heaven is a part of the story. And that's the destination to be sure. But God is not just interested in trying to get you and me into heaven. If that was his only goal, then the Christian life would be you'd pray a prayer and it'd be beam me up, Scotty, and we'd be out of here, right? That would be it. But the truth is, God has another goal for your life and for my life. His biggest objective in this journey is not simply to get us to a destination, but to prepare us for that destination. Or as I'm fond of saying, God isn't just trying to put you into heaven. He's trying to put more of heaven into you so that you can be a part of bringing his heaven here. 
A couple of scriptures, I mean, speaking of this, this is all over the scriptures. But let me give you a couple of these, just in case you're wondering if this is really true. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. Some of your Bible say, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion into the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a good work he's doing in you, and he's going to finish it. How about this from Galatians? Paul writes, my dear children, these are the Christians in the church in Galatia, my dear children, for whom I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ be what? Formed in you. And men, don't we know what those pains of childbirth are like? We do, right? No, we don't. Don't don't pretend to know that. You don't know that. All right, but here we go. Philippians, uh, one more here. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled, here it is, with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. That's God's goal. He wants to produce the fruit of Christ in you. And anybody who's ever been to VBS remembers the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is the kind of stuff that God wants to grow and produce in you and me. That is his number one goal. God's number one goal is to help you and me become the kind of people that we were created to be. And that's what this series is all about. Today, I want to talk with you about this idea of becoming. Specifically, I want to talk about the power to become. The power to become the kind of people that we were created to be. Throughout the month of January, we're going to be looking at the life of a guy named David. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with David. It's okay if you don't know David's story. We're going to jump into a lot of it. David is a, a guy in the Old Testament. This is before Jesus came to earth. And David's story begins in a very, very unusual way. We're told that David is a man after God's heart. But David's story, in fact, almost never began at all. Uh, David's story could have been missed. And that's what we're going to see today when we look at his story's kickoff in chapter 16 of a book called First Samuel. Now, I need to give you a little bit of background on this book. Uh, in the Bible, you'll see that there are actually two books called Samuel. There's 1 Samuel and... Okay, I just want to make sure y'all are awake, Willie. I mean, it's, we're, getting, we're getting quiet here. Second Samuel. First and second Samuel. Why are there two Samuels? Well, there's actually only one Samuel. But in the, in the ancient days, in the ancient manuscripts, you, you kind of had a limited amount of space on an individual scroll, kind of like data on your cell phone, right? You run out if you have too many photos. And so they could only fit half of the book of Samuel on the first scroll, and so then they had to put the second half on a second scroll, so it became known as 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Okay, you're awake now. That's right. So it's actually one book, and you know where they actually decided to divide the two scrolls? Right at the moment when David becomes king interesting. Well, in the book of Samuel, there are three major characters we're going to meet. There's Samuel. He's a prophet. I'll tell you about him in a second. And then there's Saul, who will be the first king. And then there's David, who will be the second king. And in case you're not familiar with the story, let me give this background. God leads his people out of Egypt, slavery there, and into the promised land. There are 12 tribes. They each have their own kind of territory. And they are supposed to be governed with God as their king and with they as his people. 
But they kind of don't like this arrangement. And so God gives them some people called judges. These are like regional governors to try and help bring some order out of the chaos. Things just get worse in a hurry. And then God's people come to the prophet Samuel and say, listen, Samuel, we don't like this gig at all. We want a king like everybody else has. We don't want God as our king. We can't see him. We can't touch him. We want a king we can see and that we can touch. And Samuel and God say, you know what? This is not going to go well. But okay, have it your way, right? That's kind of basically the Bible up into the first. All right, so then we come to 1 Samuel, and that's exactly where we pick up. Samuel is a prophet, and prophets' jobs are to be the representatives for God. He's, a prophet is God's agent, God's spokesperson, God's attorney. When the prophet signs, it's as good as if God signed it. So Samuel, he's given this task by God to go and pick the first king. Uh, And he goes and picks a guy named Saul. Now, Saul on the outside looks exactly like what you would expect a king to look like. He looks exactly like that long-haired college quarterback who lost the game a couple weeks ago. You all know who I'm talking about, right? He's tall, and he he looks like he should be on the cover of GQ. Uh, Or I'm told, so I'm told he's really cute. I don't know if he's cute or not. Anyway, he's tall, he's fit, he's athletic. That's exactly what Saul looked like. And so they said, this is the obvious choice. He's big, he's charismatic, he's good-looking, he's a great warrior, he's smart. Basically, well, he doesn't look like me, but no one was surprised. He was the first-round draft pick for sure. And when he started out, it started out pretty good. But soon, he turned out to be a king like most other kings in this world. The power corrupted his heart. He became proud and self-willed. He used his position of power to serve himself rather than serving the people he was called to lead. And God, as a result, rejects him. Interesting. We're going to learn more about that. God goes to Samuel and says, listen, Samuel, I'm kind of done with this quarterback. I need you to go and get us a new quarterback. And I've got the person picked out. I want you to go and look for this man named David. Now, one last detail here, though. The way you become a king in this day is the prophet actually has to anoint you, actually put some oil on you. I know it sounds a little bit strange, but this was a symbolic way of saying, this is the man, this is the dude, this is the king. He is anointed. And that's what's going to happen in our, in our next chapter. First Samuel 16, verse 1, right where our story picks up. Let me read this to you. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? He really likes the old quarterback still, right? How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Instead, fill your horn with oil. See what he's getting ready to do? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Interesting. Anybody ever heard of another story of a king born in Bethlehem? Hmm. Well, Samuel is terrified because he knows that Saul, if Saul catches wind of what's happening here, Saul is going to blow his top and Samuel is going to be toast. He knows that Saul has no problem getting violent, taking him out. He doesn't want anything to do with that. So he says, God, I'm not going to go because it's going to be the end of me. And then God, in one of the strangest passages in all the Bible, he, he kind of gets into this secrecy plot plan with Samuel. He says, all right, all right, Samuel, here's what we're going to do. Don't tell anybody what you're going to do. Just bring a little heifer along with you. And if anybody asks, just lie to them and tell them you're going to make a sacrifice. I don't know. It's in the Bible. You solve that one. Here we go. Back to the story. So Samuel goes, and he invites Jesse and his sons to come to this sacrifice. 
Now, the text doesn't tell us, but apparently Jesse is in on the secret. Like, he knows what's happening. He knows that it's a new king that's about to be anointed. And so, he does what any of us would do. He brings his best-looking, oldest, most straight-A, top-of-the-class, valedictorian son he's got. He brings Eliab out, or Eliab, as you may have heard it pronounced. And he presents this first eldest son to Samuel. And Samuel, at first, he's kind of impressed with this guy, too. He's like, wow, this guy's good-looking, he's athletic, he's tall, this must be our... And he says, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Surely this is the dude. I mean, it's so obvious by the outside appearance. Now, there's a little bit of Bible humor that starts to creep in here because the word in Hebrew for prophet is the word seer, seer. And what's happening here is Samuel is not seeing things all that clearly. And so God comes in and he's got to correct Samuel. He says, Samuel, you know better than this. Are you really going to make the same mistake you made with Saul? I mean, are you going to simply choose a guy because of his good looks? And then he continues, the Lord says, Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. And here comes one of the most remarkable lines in all of 1 and 2 Samuel. It says, for the Lord does not look at the things people look at. For the Lord does not look at the things people look at. For the Lord does not see as the people see. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at, the Lord sees the heart. Now, I was reflecting on this passage this week because, quite honestly, uh, and I'm guilty of this too, our culture is obsessed with appearances, aren't we? I mean, we we just are, and and I get sucked into it too. We are obsessed with our looks, with the clothes we wear, the kind of cars we drive. I mean, y'all, we spend an inordinate amount of our resources and time on externals, don't we? I mean, we just do, and the pressure is super intense in our culture because we value it so, so much. But the text seems to be suggesting that there's another option, that God doesn't really care about any of that. God doesn't care about our credentials. He doesn't care about our charisma. He doesn't care about our trophies or our titles. God cares about something much deeper and something much more significant. And can you imagine, just for a minute, how different your life might be if you cared about the internals as much as the externals in your life? See, part of the problem, I think, is that we get stuck on this. Sometimes we we settle for things looking good on the outside, even though we know that on the inside they're kind of rotting or they're withering or, quite honestly, it's just bankrupt. And we kind of live with this tension. But what if? Well, what happens next in the story is like an episode straight out of The Bachelor. Uh, Look at what happens here at verse 8. Then Jesse calls... This next son, I love this name, Abinadab, Abinadab, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then brings his next son, Shema, and passes him by. But Samuel says, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse has four more sons, seven in total. They all pass in front, just like the bachelor. Who's going to get the rose? Do they do a rose in bachelor? Anyway, he passes them all in front. Who's going to be the king? And he gets the end of the seven sons. And Samuel turns and says, look, none of these has the Lord chosen. 
Now, again, there's a little bit of Bible stuff going on here because in the Hebrew culture, seven is the number of completion. There are seven days in the week. The Sabbath is the seventh day. It's when it is finished. And so kind of in between the lines here is this sense of, look, after you've had seven sons, you don't need another. He's passed seven sons in front of him. And Samuel says, he's not here. The Lord has rejected all of these. And then he asks this funny question. He says, Jesse, do you have any more kids? I mean, you would think Jesse would know how many kids he's had, right? But look at what that tells us about his eighth son, the son that he didn't need, the son that's kind of forgotten, the son that's overlooked, the son that is quite literally the runt of the family. They've all forgotten about him. And then he kind of has this epiphany. He goes, oh yeah, there's still the young one. He's somewhere out in the field. We totally forgot about him, right? He's out there tending sheep. So Samuel says, send for him, and we're not going to sit down until he gets here. I have no idea what that means, but if you can ever figure that one out, I researched it, and I could not find any explanation. So they're waiting, right? They're just waiting for him to come. And David finally gets there. He's brought in, and then Samuel looks at him, and he says this, rise, and excuse me, the Lord says this, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. And thus begins the story of the greatest earthly king Israel will ever know. This boy, this eighth son, the runt, the one who everyone ever overlooked, the one who everyone thought would never amount to anything, this is the son God uses to slay the giant, to defeat the Philistines, to unite his kingdom, to build the temple, and ultimately to point to another king that would be born in Bethlehem who would be of the line of David. Holy cow. That child, Jesus, like David, would grow up to defeat evil and death itself. He would give his life on a cross to unite us with God. He would build his temple, the church, to bring about his kingdom in this world. But that is a sermon for another day. Because before any of that can happen, David's story has to start. He must begin. He must take the first step on his journey. And so today, I want to look at three things that I think we can learn from David's life about taking the next step on our spiritual journey. Because see, the truth is that if you and I are going to become the people that God's created us to be, if we're going to experience all that God desires for our lives, it's going to require first that we start seeing as God sees. The first thing we see is that we're going to have to start seeing as God sees. It's going to require a change in our perspective. I remember a Christmas from, uh, well, I guess it was uh, 12 years ago. Is that possible? It may have been not quite that long. Maybe 2009. I remember it was, we were kind of still in the recession a little bit. And so Mayor Rob and I had talked. And this Christmas, we were going to like cut back on the presents. Anyone ever tried to do this, right? We tried and failed. So we tried to cut back. We're like, we're not going to do the materialism thing. We're just going to, you know, love the kids. I don't know, give them socks or something. And so apparently the grandparents found out about this plot. 
and they decide to sabotage the whole thing, right? Which is what grandparents do. So they go to Walmart, they buy, buy out like half the store, right? They, they charter a UPS plane to ship it all to our house and, and there arrives this huge box on our porch. I mean, it was monstrous. And of course, we didn't open it because we didn't know if the presents were wrapped or not. So we just put it next to the tree. I mean, it kind of dwarfed the tree. So the box is right there. We wake up Christmas morning, open it, and it's just filled with toys upon toys upon toys. And it's great. I mean, it's so awesome. Grandparents are generous. Love you, grandparents. By the end of that day, I was worn out. And I mean, there's wrapping paper everywhere in the living room, toy boxes. I'm like, I'm not touching this. I just went to bed. Woke up the next morning and I came out and I half expected to just see the kids there playing with their toys, right? I mean, that's what Christmas is all about. But you know where the kids were? All three boys were sitting inside that box. If only we had known how easy it is to please them for Christmas, right? They're all inside this box. The toys are everywhere and they're not even touching them. They're in the box. Why? Well, because when I looked at that empty box, all I saw was an empty box. But what my boys saw was a pirate ship. When I looked at the floor with wrapping paper, all I saw was a big mess. What they saw was an ocean awaiting pirate adventures. When I looked at that whole room, all I could see was a big cleanup project that I did not want to touch. And what my boys saw was Disneyland right there in their living room. You see, it's all about perspective, isn't it? God doesn't see as the world sees. And this becomes one of the dominant themes of David's life, and it is carried from the beginning to the end of First and Second Samuel. Samuel and Jesse are standing there, and they're looking at, at the oldest son, Eliab, and they're like, God, you see this guy? I mean, this guy is top-notch. He's tall, he has, he's athletic, he's good-looking, he's got the right credentials, he's the oldest son. He would be the perfect king. And God's like, yeah, no. And then they bring up the next one with a really cool name, right? Abinadab, Abinadabad. And they say, okay, how about this guy? He's got a really cool name. He's number two on the draft list. And God's like, yeah, no, not that guy. And they just keep going and they get to the end and they're like, God, what are you doing? And then suddenly, the one that nobody thought, the empty box of the family, gets tapped as the next king. And I just wonder this morning if some of you, when you look at your own life, all you see is an empty box. God could never do that in my life. God could never use me. My life's just an empty box. That's God. all God has given me. But if we would see as the Lord sees then what we might discover, he has not given you an empty box. He has given you an opportunity. Because the truth is that God has given you everything you need to do what he has called you to do today. But the problem is, I I got this little voice back here. Do you know this voice? I mean, I got it right now, even as I'm preaching. I'm like, Aaron, they don't care what you got to say right now. Aaron, what do you think you're doing up there? Aaron, you're not smart enough. Aaron, you're not spiritual. Like, Aaron, really? What do you do? Right? You, anybody else have this voice in your head? Yeah. I'm not tall enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not whatever enough. And all we see is an empty box. But what if? What if God hasn't given you an empty box? What if he has given you an opportunity to play a role in his story? You see, I think one of the greatest things in life that holds us back from becoming who God has created us to be is that we see ourselves as the world sees us, as not enough, as an empty box. 
But God says, I don't care about any of that stuff. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for perfect people. I'm not looking for top first round draft picks. I'm simply looking for someone who is willing to trust me and take the next step. So how do we do that? How do we actually respond to this insanely gracious, adventurous call? Well, I think the clue is found in the second half of our verse, 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. He doesn't see the way we see. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, at the heart. See, the truth is, God cares more about your heart than he does your height. He cares more about your character than he does your credentials. God cares more about your soul than he does your success. David's life, David's success in life, excuse me, his ability to become the person that God called him to be hinges on this one simple truth, that he was a man after God's own heart. That's it. That's the only qualification. You know, one of the most common questions I get asked as a pastor is, and and what do do I have to do to, to please God? Like, what do I have to do to grow in this whole Christian journey? And it's kind of interesting because, you know, truthfully, it's, it's not a big secret. It's not like some, you know, master scientific formula. It's, it's actually rather quite simple how we grow. I think there are three basic ingredients. Uh, and, and the first one is simply this, that, that we spend regular times in worship, prayer, and the Bible. Now, is anybody surprised that that's on the list? Anybody think that? I mean, we, we already know this, right? This is, we know this. This is just kind of fundamental. And of course, David knew this too. If you were with us last Sunday, we talked about how the vast majority of the Psalms, uh, the, the poems and songs in the Bible, were written by David or in honor of David. And Psalm after Psalm after Psalm speak about David consistently meditating on God's word rising in the morning to pray, calling on God in times of distress. Now, does this mean that if you want to grow spiritually, you need to go become a nun or join a monastery or do something like that? No, 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 don't worry, you don't have to do that. In fact, in my own spiritual journey, what I've learned is that spiritual fitness is a lot like physical fitness. It's more about consistency than it is about quantity. In fact, just uh, just this year, about four months ago, five excuse me, five months ago, uh, I joined a gym for the first time in forever. Uh, I, I, I was like, oh, I got to do something. I got to get in shape. And, and a friend invited me. And I'm not going to tell you what gym I joined, but, um, you know, it's got a cross in the title and, um, because I'm a Christian. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, I joined this gym and, and I show up and I'm just like ready. And I'm, and I'm expecting like immediate results. I'm ready to just hit the ground run. I show up and day one, this is a true story. They would not let me lift a bar. Right? Like, I'm, I come in, I'm like, I'm ready. And, and like, I'm watching everybody else, and they got the bars, and they got the big circle weights on the end. They're all hosses. You know what I had to do? When they did squats with like these big bars, I had to do therapy squats. Do you know what a therapy squat is? It's a squat with nothing. That's it. That's what I did. And that's what I had to do for like three weeks. They wouldn't even let me hold a bar. That's how lame I was. I mean, it was, it was terrible. But I just kept showing up. I just kept showing up day after day after day, just doing my therapy squats. Right, eventually, I got a bar. I graduated up a little bit. And, but here's, here's what's really interesting. You know what? Four months later of consistently going, here's what's great. 
I've actually gotten stronger. I've actually graduated, and now they let me lift the same amount of weight as the seventh grade girls. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely true. Me and the, it's true, isn't it? Me and the seventh grade girls. Willie can attest, yes. But see, spiritual growth is a lot like physical growth. It's about consistency more than quantity. So here's how I practice this. I start each morning with 10 to 15 minutes of prayer in Scripture. You don't have to do it this way. This is just how I do it. Uh, in fact, right now I'm reading through 1 Samuel. Anybody uh, know how many days are in the month of January? 31, 31. Okay. Guess how many chapters there are in 1 Samuel? 31. So I'm, I'm reading one chapter a day through 1 Samuel throughout the month of January. I start each morning reading 1 Samuel, and I pray, and I do that for 10 or 15 minutes. And I've been doing this habit for years. I just happen to be in 1 Samuel right now because we're reading and learning about David. But what's been amazing is how God has used that in my life, those, li- those little consistent moments in Scripture and prayer with Him to shape and form the character of Jesus in me. That's how it's happened. It's not a secret. It's amazing just to see what he has done in my heart and in my life. The other part of this is regular participation in Sunday worship. Now, I know this is not fair because you don't get paid to go to church like I do. I get that. This is not fair. I get paid to come here. Of course, if I don't come here, I'm going to lose my job. I won't get paid anymore. But what God has done in my life is he has used consistently Sunday morning worship to shape and form his character in me. And so what I do when I come, and you guys see this, I just sit on the front row, and as the service starts, I pause and I pray. I say, God, would you speak to my heart today? Through the songs or or through something Nathan says or, or through the scripture, would you speak to me today and would you grow me? And I pray that prayer at the start of every Sunday. And it's amazing to see what he has done in my life through that consistent habit. So the first thing is, we, we got to be regular in worship, prayer, and scripture. Whatever that looks like for you, right? That's, that's going to lead to growth. Second is this. you got to find some other people who are trying to follow Jesus and start doing it with them. You know, we say this all the time, but uh, Christianity is not a solo sport. Did you know that? You really can't do the Christian life alone. We've got to be doing it with people who are after God's own heart as well. And this can look like a spiritual friendship. Maybe it's just one person you connect with on a regular basis. And you talk about faith and you pray together. That, that, that can be it. Or maybe it's finding a formal group, a, a community group, or a Bible study, or some group to be a part of, whatever it looks like for you. Of course, we see this in David's life. Uh, he had a very special spiritual friendship with a guy named Jonathan. Uh, they really built each other's faith. He also was a part of a small group of men. In fact, this group was so famous, it became known as David's mighty men. This was his men's group. And they had each other's backs. And I just need to pause here for a minute and, and just speak to the men. And I'm guilty of this, but men, I just got to tell you, we, we're terrible at this, aren't we? I mean, we just are. Like, we can so easily settle into Christianity as a solo sport. Like, I mean, we can settle into life as a solo sport where we don't have any meaningful relationships. And yet we will not grow. We will not become the kinds of people God's created us to be without some brothers to come around us to do life with us. Not only will you grow in character and faith, but when you don't have that brotherhood, you are vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy in a way that you have no idea about. What would it look like? Men, men, women too, women too. But men, we got to get better at this one. What would it look like for you? Third and finally is this. Well, first, we've got to be regular in worship, prayer, and scripture. Secondly, we've got to find some folks to do that life of faith with. Third and finally, we've got to find a way 
to serve others. Find a way to serve others. And it's interesting, when you look at First and Second Samuel, you step back and you look at the story at large. Here's, how, here's what the whole story is about. It's really a study in character, a contrast between King Saul and King David. King Saul is prideful, self-centered, narcissistic, dishonest. David is humble, trusting, imperfect, willing to apologize, ask forgiveness. But he's after God's heart. And the invitation as we read these two books, this one book, is to decide, well, which, which path am I going to walk? What, which kind of person am I going to become? Am I on, on the path towards becoming a Saul, or am I going to follow this other path like David after God's heart? See, one of the most important parts of growing spiritually comes from the decision to put others first, to choose to practice the regular habit of serving. I was reading this week an article by Jean Twin. She's an expert on narcissism and uh, really interesting what her research has found. She's studied narcissism and she's also studied generations. And what she has found is that the generation that is entering their 20s right now, uh, between the ages of 20 and up to about 30, 32, uh, is the most narcissistic generation in the history of American culture. Did you know that? Way to go, millennials. Way to go. You guys won that trophy. No, I'm feeling a little bit smug right now because as a Gen Xer, I'm like, that's right. Yeah, that's right. You But here, here, well, look what she says. This is what she says. She says, this is not actually the fault of the children in this generation. It is the fault of the parents who taught these kids that life is all about them. So parents of millennials, we get to raise our hands now and say, hey, we did this to these kids, didn't we? We did. But see, the truth is, it's not just one generation that suffers from this. We all suffer. We are all vulnerable to the me monster in our life. But what's more interesting to me than these findings is the remedy that Dr. Twinge actually suggests. This is a quote. She says, find a way to get the focus off of me and instead focus on serving someone else. Interesting. Because that starts to sound a whole lot like Jesus to me, doesn't it to you? Remember when Jesus said, you know what real greatness in this world looks like? It doesn't come from being served, but by becoming the servant of all. Truth is, we all suffer from the me monster syndrome. And if we're not careful, our lives can become filled with the stuff and stuff and stuff that's all about me. So how are you doing on this one? Where in your life do you share your time, your energy, your resources to serve and benefit others? You know, there's one last thing in this story that I don't want us to miss this morning as as we kind of come in to land the plane. Uh, It's interesting because, you know, it's tempting, I think, in our lives to think that that becoming who who we are called to be or doing something great in this life comes from these single acts of just this, this giant leap of courage, right? We, we go from zero to 60. And that's part of the, how the movies portray it and, and culture around us. But, but the Bible paints a very different picture. In fact, at the end of this little section here in verse 13, it's interesting, Samuel anoints David as king. We know he's gonna be the next king. But you know what happens next? Samuel says, all right, I'm peacing out. I'm gonna go over to this other city. We'll see you later. And David just stays in Bethlehem. David doesn't actually become king for another 15 chapters. And why is that? 
Well, because God has some work that he wants to do in David's life as a shepherd before he's ready to become a king. In fact, David's going to go right back out to the field, right back out with the sheep and the sheep poop. He's going to be walking right back around where he was, but he's doing it differently now. Because when he defeats the lion, he knows he has to learn how to defeat the lion before he can defeat Goliath. He knows that he has to learn how to shepherd his sheep before he can shepherd a nation. And God is growing in him God's character, God's heart, because David is committed to pursuing the heart of God. See, the final thing I think we see in this part of David's story is that taking the next step to become who we are means starting small. It's not taking a giant leap. It's simply taking a small next step. So, what would that step look like for you today? As we start this new year, as you think about what God is calling you to become, what he's calling you to put your hands to in this new year, the work he's created for you to do as part of his kingdom, what small next step is he asking you to take? Can we pray?